For many years, there was only one day in the year where there were no professional or collegiate team sports games or any on television for that matter. One day out of 365, and that was the day after the Major League Baseball All-Star Game, which, by the way, is coming up this coming Tuesday. Now, that is no longer the case due to the MLS, Major League Soccer. They've kind of taken that day over. But because of that pause, ever since 2002, ESPN has an intentionally, they've intentionally held the Excellence in Sports Performance and Achievement Awards, which they're called the ESPYs, on the Wednesday following the Major League All-Star Game. Um, now, why do I say that? Well, first, it's, it's right around the corner, so it's kind of current. And second, there's something actually in our passage today that reminds me of something that happened at the ESPYs way back in 1993. Now, each year at the ESPY uh, Awards, someone is honored with the Arthur Ashe Courage and Humanitarian Award. This is presented annually to individuals, usually athletes, whose contributions transcend sports. Now, Arthur Ashe was an African-American tennis player. He, he was an activist, and each year this award is handed out in his honor. So the 1993 recipient of the Arthur Ashe Courage Award was former North Carolina State basketball coach, former national champion Jimmy Valvano, who also founded the V Foundation for Cancer Research. So let's just watch an excerpt from uh, his speech in 1993. Now I'm fighting cancer, everybody knows that. Uh, and people ask me all the time about how you, you go through your life and how's your day. And nothing has changed for me, as Dick said. I'm a very emotional, passionate man. I can't help it. That's being the son of Rocco and Angelina Valvano. That it comes with the territory, right? We hug, we kiss, we love. And, and when people say to me, how do you get through uh, life or, or each day, it's the same thing. To me, there are three things we all should do every day. We do this every day of our life. You're going to have, what a wonderful, number one is laugh. You should laugh every day. Number two is think. You should spend some time in thought. And number three is you should have your emotions moved to tears. Could be happiness or joy. But think about it. If you laugh, you think, and you cry, that's a full day. That's a heck of a day. You do that seven days a week, you're going to have something special. Okay, Jim Valvano, he, he actually passed away from cancer less than two months after that speech. And, and his legacy lives on. Now, if you turn it into the ESPY Awards this, this Wednesday, you're going to see there's now an award given out in his name. So a, as he approached the end of his life, uh, as you just heard, Jim Valvano said we should be doing three things every day. And that, that speech has actually become quite popular each year. People have really latched on to, to that speech and his ideas. Now, Jimmy V's three things, they're good things. But in our text today, the Apostle Peter gives us four even more important things that we, should be, that we should remember and that we should do as the end draws near. Okay, I'm excited about this passage. I mean, who would not be excited about a passage that so delicately begins with the words, the end of all things is near? I mean, come on, right? I mean, when we divided up 1 Peter and I first read these, uh, this very uplifting beginning to my passage that was given to me, I thought, oh, great. But I couldn't even blame Pastor Stacy because the reality is I picked this Sunday to preach, so it's on me. But I can't read these opening words here in verse 7 without thinking of the B.C. comic strip. Does anybody remember or, or know of that B.C. comic strip? 
Okay, a few of you do. Now, one of the sad things about not having newspapers laying around is we're not able to read the comic strips like we used to, unless you go online. I grew up in a house that received two newspapers a day, and on top of that, somebody in my house had one of those paperback books that had a lot of these famous BC comic strips in it. So for, for those of you who don't know, BC uh, was a daily comic strip created by Johnny Hart. Uh, it was set in prehistoric times. It featured a group of cave people and anthropomorphic animals. The comic strip actually started in 1958. It ran until Hart passed away in 2007, but it actually still continues today through one of his descendants. So BC came to mind because I recall several BC comic strips where one of the characters would hold up a sign that said the end is near. Okay, so take this one with the ants. Okay, one ant is holding up a sign saying the world will end tomorrow, and the other ant's holding up a sign that says the world will not end tomorrow. What if you're wrong? Who's going to know? Okay, that really, doesn't, that really doesn't reconcile with our biblical worldview of where things are going, but it's funny nonetheless. But, but through the years, those who predict the end of the world or the end is near, they're often ridiculed or mocked, especially when it doesn't happen. If you've been following Christ for any length of time, you've probably heard multiple counts, multiple warnings and predictions that we're in the last days, or this particular event or sign is pointing that it's really close. We've all seen people on the street corner with the signs or sandwich boards proclaiming the end of the world, and we can even develop a sense of fatigue when we continually encounter this, and you might feel like this guy on the stone unicycle Here's another BC comic. But you see, for him, the end was actually closer than he thought. It just wasn't what he thought it was going to be. Now seriously, as I prepared and I studied this passage, I've actually grown kind of fond of it. So first, I'm excited about the simplicity and the practicality of the text. Now we find in our opening verse, verse 7, the word, therefore. And we know that when we see that word, we need to look back to see what it's there for. And it's actually pointing to a reality from verse 5 from last week that all of us will have to give an account to him who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. Now, it also points to our opening statement here in verse 7 this week that the end of all things is near. Therefore, therefore, Peter gives us four things, four ways to live your life, if you will, for how these first century followers of Jesus who were strangers and aliens in this Greco-Roman culture, and, and how us today can live faithfully as stewards of Christ as the end draws near, as we wait for the fulfillment of Christ's coming kingdom when he returns. So, you know, we pastors, we like to nerd out uh, on the structure of biblical passages. You've heard us talk about chiastic structure, and we put up these diagrams, A, B, C, B, A, that that outline the flow of the text, particularly the epistles uh, and how with these letters that were written. But this passage is actually structurally very simple. The end of all things is near. Therefore, here are four ways you should be living. And secondly, I'm excited about this passage because it, this passage really has good news. Now, what's the good news? Well, that's the good news you've already heard. It's right up front. The end of all things is near. That's the best of news. It really is, and we're going to see why when we dive into the text today. All right, so let's dive in. Let's talk about 
Peter's proclamation to these churches, again in the northern part of Turkey in verse 7, that the end of all things is near. Now, at first glance, we're tempted to look at this and conclude that, wow, it's, the end clearly was not as near as Peter seemed to think it was. I mean, it hasn't happened yet. Peter was Jewish, and he would have tapped into his Jewish understanding of prophecy. Now, the Jewish understanding believed that to refer to the end of all things as near or imminent was to say that God's next big event was on the horizon, the next big event that would usher in God's final judgment. Jewish prophets had been saying much the same thing for a very long time, and even though the end that they prophesied uh, never happened or hasn't happened yet, when the Jewish prophets would make such a statement, but the end did not occur, we need to understand that no one said they were false prophets or that they had gotten it wrong. The point was not that they should know exactly when the end was, but rather that because the end could come suddenly at any time, everyone needed to be ready all the time. And Peter here is speaking from his Jewish understanding, saying that in the sense that we don't know when it's coming, we still better be ready. And this, is the under, this understanding is the basis for how we should live, or the way he teaches, why we, how we should do this. Peter asked us to remember four things. And we can divide these four things up into one thing that's vertically as it pertains to our relationship with God and three horizontal things that pertain to how we relate to each other in a community of believers. So in the first vertical thing, Peter says to remember, he says, the end of all things is near, therefore be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Dr. Dennis Edwards, we've quoted him quite a bit in, in this series, states that Peter is urging the readers to have a spiritual alertness where attention is given to what is happening around them or what is happening around us. Now, Scott McKnight would agree with this, saying that staying alert is essential to effective prayer. So to be sober-minded means to be clear-minded, uncluttered, unentangled, by the things of life, things that might slow us down or things that might trip us up. Now, prayer, as we know, is as much about listening as it is anything. Because the end is near, we need to be faithfully oriented toward the one true God and be mindful of these things that might cloud our, our minds, our dull, our sensitivities to the things of the Spirit. And this is the lens through which we need to view the difficulty that we might have in any situation or suffering. Things like fear, anxiety, and alienation can, can overwhelm us, just as it could this the first century reader, and it can deaden our hearts to God's spirit and, and the place of prayer in our lives. Now, additionally, there are other things, such as materialism, anger, addictions of all kind, idolatry, idolatry. They can also easily dull our minds and our hearts and our spirits so that we're not as attentive or sensitive to the leading of God's spirit. And this can inhibit our prayers. And Peter's saying here, the end of all things is near. So be alert and sober-minded when praying so that we can be clued into what God is doing in the world around us. So I said, Peter's next three things that we should remember all have to do with the horizontal, how we relate to each other in community. Now, Peter begins with what he feels is the most important. He says, above all, Love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Now, the word for love here is agape love. This is the love Christ has for us and, and the kind of love that Christ commands that we should have for each other. Peter says, 
love each other deeply. Now, many, including Pastor Stacy and others, feel that translating this word deeply as continually is probably easier for us to understand uh, and less vague than the word deeply. So how do we do that? How do we love each other constantly? And we often, we often think of love as a feeling. But agape love is, is love in action. To love one another is to do the right thing, to do the loving thing toward one another. Even our enemies, even when we don't feel particularly loving toward another person. Love is a choice, it's an action, not a feeling. Peter is saying here, the end of all things is near, and this is the kind of love that you're going to need. So in the message, Eugene Peterson, he translates it this way, love each other as if your life depended on it. Then Peter says something very interesting here. He says that by doing this, by loving one another deeply or constantly, we cover a multitude of sins. Now Peter is quoting Proverbs 10, 12, hate, hatred stirs up conflict, but love covers all wrongs. Now we need to handle this carefully. Does this mean that if we are loving toward one another, we get forgiveness for our sins? Or does it mean that our love for others covers or justifies their sinful behavior? No, no, we can't reconcile that with what Scripture says about the work of Christ related to the atonement of our sins. Neither our sins or other sins are washed away just because we learn to love others better. Our sins are washed away by the blood of Christ. When we confess them to God in prayer and we ask for his forgiveness and his salvation. So, so what does this mean? Scott McKnight contends that we're probably better off understanding this saying to mean that the community that loves one another is able to forgive one another more rapidly when minor issues arise. In other words, to love one another deeply is going to require intentionality. It's going to require effort. So Peter then instructs his readers in verse 9 to offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Dr. Stephen C. Barton states that the ancient Mediterranean idea of hospitality is a lot different from our individualistic Western concept where we mostly think about entertaining our friends and our family. Hospitality was a public duty towards strangers where the honor of the community was at stake. Now remember these churches they met in private homes for worship and instruction and fellowship and it wasn't uncommon for these first century believers to host itinerant missionaries in their homes. We still do that today in, in some ways. Now Peter instructs these readers to offer hospitalities to strangers without grumbling. Again, Dr. Edward, Edwards writes, Peter's understanding that the reality here is offering hospitality can often be burdensome. It can even be subject to abuse. Theologian Arthur Sutherland describes Christian hospitality in this context. It's the intentional, responsible, and caring act of welcoming and visiting, either in public or private places, those who are strangers, enemies, or distress, without regard for reciprocation. So this is what's behind our touchstone of welcome and why it's so important to us at ECC. Christ calls us to be welcoming people. So again, Eugene Peterson, he translates verse 9 this way. Be quick to give a meal to the hungry, a bed to the homeless, and do it cheerfully. 
So there's a parallel text that encourages this radical practice of hospitality. It's found in Hebrews 13, verse 2, where the writer of Hebrews says, Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so some people have shown hospitalities to angels without knowing it. And that's a verse that makes you think, right? Now Edwards further expands that there were four aspects to early Christian hospitality. The first one, shared meals. We get that. Care for traveling evangelists. We just talked about that as being in place. Care for the worshipers who met in the homes. And get this. Understanding that its practice, the practice of hospitality, was one sign of the fitness for leadership. The Apostle Paul reciprocates this in two very common leadership texts we're very familiar with. 1 Timothy 3.2 and Titus 1.8, which respectively state, state that an overseer or an elder should be hospitable, among other things. Peter then gives us the fourth thing that we should do in verse 10. Each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various form. <clears throat> Peter speaks of gifts here. Now, the bulk of our New Testament teaching on spiritual gifts comes from the Apostle Paul in three primary passages, from Romans 12, from 1 Corinthians 12, and Ephesians 4. And there we find lists of spiritual gifts. And most scholars conclude that these passages should not be considered exhaustive lists of gifts. God gives gifts of all kinds of gifts of the Spirit. But regarding these gifts, both Paul and Peter use the Greek word charisma, charisma, which means or divine grace. It is by the grace of God we are given gifts from God. And Peter says here we should be faithful and stewarding over these gifts. But unlike Paul's longer list, Peter breaks these gifts into two categories. The categories of speaking and serving. He says if anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. And if anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides. Okay, speaking and serving. Now first off, I don't want anyone to think for a moment that... Only the gift of serving applies to you. Both gifts apply to everyone. Peter's not going to let you off the hook regarding speaking. This isn't just about those who stand up here for 25 minutes on Sunday morning or 75 minutes while we do the worship service. This is also about speaking in the 97% of our waking hours when we're outside of church or church activities. We all speak. And when we do speak whether that's teaching or being in a life group or even in the fellowship that happens in the lobby following the worship service, Peter says we are to speak as ones who speak the very words or oracles of God. Again, Dennis Edwards states this expression means the weighty words or the promises originating with God. So to speak the weighty words of God, the encouraging words of God, that is everyone's job. It is a gift you have been given. Likewise, you've also been given gifts to use in service. I'm not going to run through those lists of gifts but are the ways you can serve, but rather to emphasize that when you do serve, you should note two important things that this passage points out. The readers and us today should do those, these things with the strength that God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. 
All right, so let's, let's wrap, recap, and appreciate the simplicity and the structure of this passage. The end of the age is near. Therefore, be about these four things. First, the vertical. Be alert and sober-minded to what is around you so that it will cultivate your relationship with God through prayer. Then the horizontal. First, love each other deeply or continually. Offer hospitality. It's important as a Christ follower that this be a mark of who you are. And lastly, use the gifts God has given to you, which includes speaking, yes, all of you, and serving so that God may be glorified. So I stated earlier that Peter's opening statement is good news. It's good news that this current version of the kingdom of God that we see with our eyes and that we experience, it's good news that it could be over just like that. So in the message version of the Bible, again, Eugene Peterson, he puts a more positive spin on verse 7. He states, everything in the world is about to be wrapped up. So take nothing for granted. That's a little more positive, isn't it? See, we can perceive the end of anything as bad or good. So the older I get, the more I think about the end of my days in this life. And I think that's natural for any of us as we age. You know, when we're young, we might not, we think that might be the furthest thing from our mind. But scripture actually has a lot to say about our death. Psalm 90.12 says, teach us to number our days so that we may get a heart of wisdom. That we may get a heart of wisdom. So I was just in Europe in June, and, and if you've flown internationally with trying to change six or more time zones, you've probably had the experience of not being able to sleep at some point in the middle of the night. For me, this happened the second night I was in Europe. So I'm, I'm laying in bed that night with my eyes wide open, and after some time of prayer, I had what I thought was a great idea. I thought, you know, I'm just going to focus my thoughts and meditate on this passage of Scripture that I'm going to preach until I fall asleep. You know, I had this mostly memorized at this point, so I laid there and I tried to meditate on the text. Well, what do you think happened? After about 20 minutes, I find myself at the desk in the hotel with my cell phone propped up on two water bottles and a pen and a paper, and I'm writing down all kinds of thoughts on the this passage in my this sermon. I was trying not to wake up my wife, but at one point Joe woke up and she said, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm working, I can't sleep, I'm working on my sermon. Fortunately, she just muttered something and rolled over and went back to sleep. <laughs> but here's what I thought about, about the end of all things being near and why this is good news. I thought, I like my life, okay? There's a lot to like in my life. And at first, it's real easy to think that there are things I'm going to miss about my life. Now, I don't know if it was because I was visiting Austria but, or what, but I was inspired to write down a few of my favorite things. <laughs> now, I'm not going to sing them to you, but here are some of the things I currently like about my life. Okay, I really like having a granddaughter, Sophia. She's going to be here in about a week. I'm very excited about that. I really, really like playing electric bass. I don't ever get tired of doing that. I could do that every day. I pretty much do. I really like God's creation, particularly mountains. You know, Scripture has a lot to say about mountains. Scripture's not wrong. Mountains are awesome. All right? I really like, dare I say, love. I really love the way my wife loves me unconditionally. You know, the more we're together, the more I appreciate that. I'm a blessed man to have her. 
I like my job. I like my vocational calling. I like the way I feel when I accomplish things in my job. I like it, I like it how it feels when we solve problems and we do mission and ministry together. I like music. A lot of us like music. I like what certain songs do to me. There are certain genres of music that I really like, and I, I particularly like it when I'm playing in a rhythm section and things are done tightly or perfectly. If I'm playing in, with a group and there's a groove, what we rhythm section people like to say, something's in the pocket, that brings me joy. That brings me satisfaction. I like my church. I like all of you. I, I like what, I'm excited about what God is doing in us and through us here at ECC. So as I sat in that hotel room in the middle of the night and I wrote these things down, I realized I have a lot to like and a lot of things that I'm going to miss. But the good news is that of all those things, it is good news that all those things I like could end in a moment. The end of all things is near. And it's good news that those things I know could stop immediately. And they would all be replaced with even better and more amazing things or more amazing versions, particularly of the relationships that meet some of the same needs that these current things meet, but in an even better way. Dare I say, the best way. The way these needs that were given to me were always intended to be met. Now, why do I say that? Well, as good as life can be for many of us at times our world is indeed broken it's fallen it's been broken since the fall god has a plan to fix it most of you know this peter addressed christ's victory and his vindication in the passage we looked at two weeks ago that plan has already been executed it is finished we stand here today on this side of the cross and we look back on it. In many ways, we understand more what God is doing in the world and perhaps others in history. So verse 7, you see, is really the best of news. Even if in the execution of it, the execution of the end of all things or the wrapping up of the world, as Eugene Peterson puts it, it might cause us temporary discomfort, might cause us pain, might cause us suffering. It is necessary, and it is good. And when we stand on the other side of the end of all things, we're going to see it as completely worth it. So I stated earlier, Scripture says, teaches us to number our days so that we would gain a heart of wisdom. So if I don't die of something else or Jesus doesn't return beforehand, I might have as many as 11,000 or so more days in my life, assuming I live as long as the average age of my parents. Um, could, be, could be more, could be a lot less. 11,000 days. 11,000 days to do the four things Peter lists here. 11,000 days to be alert and sober-minded so I can pray. 11,000 days to love the people in my life deeply. 11,000 days to offer hospitality without grumbling. 11,000 days to use the gifts God has given me to the praise of his glory. How about you? You don't know the days of your life. You, like me, you don't know if they will be cut short because of Christ's glorious return. So to borrow from Jimmy Valvano, I think three of the, thing, three of the four things Peter lists should probably be daily be a part of our lives. Each day we should be alert and sober-minded as we pray. 
each day. We should deeply love those in our lives, forgiving and therefore covering a multitude of sins. Each day we should use the gifts God has given us. When we speak, we should speak the very words of God. They should be part of our speech. Each day we should serve through the strength God provides. And I think we should reflect on this, and I think we should look each day for the opportunities to do these three things. Now, the fourth thing, offering hospitality without grumbling, that may or may not be a daily occurrence for us. But is it part of your life? When's the last time you offered hospitality? When's the last time, if ever, you've offered hospitality to a stranger? Dennis Edwards suggests that each of us should orient ourselves toward the biblical idea of hospitality by first choosing to simplify our lives and our schedules so that we can do this. Now, how might you do that in your life? So the end of all things is near. Therefore, be about these four things. Why? Well, Peter tells us why here at the end of verse 11. So that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen.